thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I'm really looking forward today, and I hope that you are as well, because we're going to begin to now build or look at the question of how do we build our lives in such a way? How do we invest our time, our energies, our thoughts, steward our time, talent, and treasures so as to have enduring fruit within the kingdom of God so that at the day of the final judgment, in the refining of our works, there is something that still remains. And I'm really looking forward to this. I I want to begin, though, before I delve into this, uh, with saying that in some ways, what I'll be sharing over the next few weeks is my own journey. It's part of what I began to learn as I began to really study the scriptures more intentionally, more holistically as a whole and began to read some of the great theologians of past centuries over the stuff that generally comes out today from from many within the evangelical community. The three steps to this and five steps to that and how to have a better this and how to have a better that. And I hope you will find this helpful to you. And I realized after the last couple of weeks where I was trying to help make clear what the Supreme Court did and did not do in the leaked Dobbs opinion regarding abortion, that I really needed to go back and lay a better foundation than the one that I laid for several months. It, it wasn't that I realized it was bad as much as I did not dig the foundation deep enough. You may recall I've used the, uh, the analogy of the Leaning Tower of Pizza, that if you don't understand the nature of the soul conditions and you don't lay the foundation correctly, what you're trying to build will get off course. And I want to go deeper today and in the next several weeks, actually, at laying the foundation that we really need to build rightly. And I hope you saw in the last couple episodes, as we looked at the Dobbs opinion, that thinking rightly can be very subtle or thinking wrongly can be very subtle. So the foundation has to be dug deep and the foundation has to be poured on on rock. Now, with that having been said, I want to go back, I guess you could say, to Scripture. Scripture is, by analogy to those that have heard the old story about Uh, Vince Lombardi, he he opened a training camp one year with the Green Bay Packers by saying, gentlemen, this is a football. And the scripture is essentially our football. It's the, the thing with which we must play, so to speak, the thing with which we must work if we're going to build our lives in a meaningful, enduring, transformative way. And I grew up hearing the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. Maybe you've heard that expression too. That's part of the old time religion that I grew up with. The Bible is our only standard, our rule for faith and practice. But I came to realize the more I began to read some of these great theologians from the 15 and 16 and 1700s, 
I didn't have any clue how the scripture was truly the rule of faith and practice. It was very limited. And I, I want to say a few things today that I would encourage you now, while you got maybe a moment to, to do so, to grab a pen and a piece of paper. I'm going to mention a couple of books that you might want to read. I'm going to mention some scripture verses that you might want to look up. I'm going to give you a suggestion for something you might want to read that I've recently written. So while I'm babbling here for a moment, grab a pen and a piece of paper or a pencil and a piece of paper or your iPad or whatever it is that you take notes on. But I'm going to read some excerpts today from a book entitled Creation Regained. It's by Albert M. Walters, W-O-L-T-E-R-S. In this book, he says some things about Scripture that I think are terribly important. And so let's take a look at those. He asks the question, what is the relationship of a worldview to Scripture? In other words, if Scripture is going to be the rule of faith and practice, and worldviews are how we understand the world, then, he says, our worldview must be shaped and tested by Scripture. Then he makes this statement. This means that in the matter of worldview, there is a significant gulf between those who accept this scripture as God's word and those who do not. It also means the Christian must constantly check his or her worldview beliefs against the scripture. So in other words, he's saying clearly there are some people that believe the scripture is the word of God and others who don't. But Christians, he's saying, have to constantly check their worldview beliefs against the Scripture because if they don't, there will be a powerful inclination to appropriate many of our beliefs, even basic ones, from a culture that has been secularizing at an accelerating rate for generations. In other words, we will conform to the thinking of the world in ways that we don't even realize we're doing if we're not constantly going back to Scripture on everything. Now, I've, I've written uh, what, what you might call a monograph. It's a, it's a small booklet type thing that focuses on how Christians can succumb to non-Christian thinking in pursuing what would otherwise seem to be a legislation that Christians would support. So if you have your pen and pencil handy, I will give you the name of this little uh, monograph, and you can send us an email at info at factn.org. That's info at factn.org. And just say, I want the monograph, or I want the booklet, and we'll know what it is. But it's called Toward Christian Nihilism, a short study in different policy approaches. And what I do in this book is I take two different bills that were in front of the General Assembly that both would seem to be driven by a Christian motive or a Christian view of the world, but show how the arguments that were made by two different kinds of Christian policy experts differed. One being consistent with the Scripture, and one using the worldview of the world that contradicts the Christian or biblical worldview. I think you'll find it very insightful. And I want you, as a part of, 
our podcast network here to not just hear theological stuff, but I want you to see how that works its way out in the real world of government, law, and politics. So, so send us an email at info at facetn.org and just say, I want the monograph, I want the booklet. If you want to refer to it toward Christian nihilism, uh, we'll, we'll get you the PDF of it. Uh, but in any event, uh, Walters then uh, continues. He says that while there are many who would say that Scripture is their supreme authority, there is considerable pressure on Christians to restrict their recognition of the authority of Scripture to the area of church, theology, and private morality, an area that has become basically irrelevant to the direction of culture and society as a whole. And that's what you'll see in this little monograph. And that's exactly what happened in the Dobbs case and in the oral arguments. You may recall the conversations we had with Jeff Schaefer, how he described the fact that in the courtroom, everybody really knew they were dealing with something significant, but no one wanted to talk about the thing that was significant, whether the unborn are human beings and persons entitled to protection under the law. We talked about everything else but that, and as I noted in the last couple of weeks' episodes, as we looked at the Dobbs opinion, that question was indeed not discussed. And not discussing it, he says, this is what Walters is saying, is itself a fruit of a secular worldview. It divides Scripture up into those areas where it can apply and those areas where uh, we, we ought not bring it up. We ought not to apply it. And he says, this must be resisted by Christians with all the resources at their disposal. And that's what we're trying to do here at God, Law, and Liberty. That's what we're trying to do at the Family Action Council of Tennessee when we make arguments for abortion, when we make arguments about marriage is to not restrict the biblical categories to our private lives, to the realm of speculative abstract theology, or to the ecclesiastical world of the church, but to say those categories of human existence and human nature apply everywhere. Walters continues, testing our worldview against Scripture and revising it accordingly is part of the renewal of the mind. He says, almost all branches of the Christian church agree the teaching of Scripture is basically a matter of theology and personal morality. A private sector labeled sacred and religious, marked off from the much broader range of human affairs labeled secular. And that's true. I see it in politics, government, and law all the time. And he says, for those people, the Bible teaches us a church view and a God view, but not a world view. This, he says, is a dangerous error. The appeal, he says, we need to make, the appeal that I'm trying to make today is to take the Bible and its teaching seriously for the totality of our civilization right now, and not to relegate it to some optional area called religion. And I think that is so very important.
And, and if we don't do that, we will wind up with dualism running throughout our thinking. Now, I'm going to come back and talk about what dualism is, and I'm, I'm going to give you some examples of it so that it's not just an abstract word. But in his book, Walters defines Christianity using a definition from Hermann Favik, who I've mentioned before, a Danish theologian of the basically late 1800s and the 1900s in the Netherlands. And Babak described the Christian faith this way. God the Father has reconciled his created but fallen world through the death of his Son and renews it into a kingdom of God by his Spirit. And Walters points out here, and I think it's so beautiful, that that description of what the Christian faith is takes in all the key terms in a Trinitarian confession in a universal, all-encompassing sense. And here's what he means by that. The terms reconciled, which is in his statement, created, fallen, world, renews, and kingdom of God, he said, are all held to be cosmic in scope. In principle, nothing apart from God himself falls outside the range of these foundational realities of biblical religion. Unfortunately, he says, all other Christian worldviews, and there are other ones, as I just said, we have people that, that profess to be Christians, they may be Christians, I don't know, God knows, but they limit the application of Scripture, for example. And he said some people will limit those words. He says they will restrict the scope of each of these terms in one way or in the other. In other words, they'll restrict the concept of the kingdom of God. They'll restrict the concept of the fall and how broad was the effect of the fall and what did it affect. They'll, they'll put an emphasis on maybe the Father or the emphasis on the Son. They're real strong on Christology, but they forget there's the Father and the Spirit. Or they put an emphasis on the Spirit and they kind of relegate Jesus as he's just the access to the Holy Spirit and God the Father. Well, not sure what he does in this thing, but you see what, what he's talking about here. So we have to appreciate that, that Christianity is cosmic in scope and that is what makes it a worldview. If your understanding of the gospel and of scripture does not embrace the whole of reality, then your view of scripture does not inform your worldview. It's scripture plus something else. And that's what you'll see in the monograph that I've mentioned. So if we don't get all of these words that, that I've just mentioned about the kingdom of God and sin and salvation and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if we don't apply Scripture to the whole of reality, we will wind up compartmentalizing our lives or creating dualisms, things that serve in a way to compete against each other, to divide our reality. And in dividing that reality, we create tensions that otherwise would not be there, should not be there. Okay, and we're going to talk about why that has to be so uh, in another episode, but it does. Now, let me give you some examples of that if you're trying to get your head around this concept of dualism. 
One of the things it can lead to is a dualism between the heart and the head. For example, the first and second great awakenings were in part a reaction to a cerebral, rationalistic sort of understanding of Christianity that, that put doctrine over and against the heart, the, the emotions of the individual, and was often seen as cold and unfeeling. But if we're not careful, what we will wind up doing is we will put all of our emphasis then on emotion and feeling and create a subjective Christianity and reject or mitigate an objective theology rooted in objective truths about God. And, and if we're not careful, what we're actually doing there is we're dividing the heart and the mind. And both are native, you might say, to who we are as made in the image of God. And both our heart and our minds need to be saved. Our hearts, our affections, must be restored by a work of the Holy Spirit, made possible by God the Son, according to the plan of God the Father, so that our affections, our hearts are God-focused and God-directed for the glory of God in all things. We have to have that. But Scripture also tells us that our thinking needs to be reformed, or, or better put, transformed, as in Romans 12. In other words, it's not a one or the other, or the either or, it's a both and. Now let me, let me stop here and touch on this for just a moment longer, because the former, the restoration, the renewing of the heart, is and must be a work of God. It's not a work we can do. And it involves the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as, as Bobak said and as I just repeated. And I think sometimes our modern obsession with the Holy Spirit that I've experienced in some churches that I've been in is really more akin to mysticism and Gnosticism than it is anything that's objective about God and His Word. And, and it begins to blur the ontological divine oneness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It can lead to thinking that you get more and more of the Holy Spirit as a thing, so to speak, a substance, not a person. You get the person of the Holy Spirit. And that we begin to think, well, if we can get more of the Spirit, we get more spiritual. But you have the Spirit or you don't have the Spirit, and it confuses this mystical Gnostic concept of spirituality as really an alternative to sanctification, which is demonstrated in practical ways, such as are found in the practical exhortations of Paul and Peter and John in their letters. Do this, don't do that. Treat your wives this way. Treat your boss this way. Treat your slaves this way. Understand your government officials this way. And moreover, this, this dichotomy between heart and head, which was a, a a salutary aspect of the first and great awakenings, we might say. But it, it can become a subjective kind of work, work that's directed at us as subjects 
in distinction from work directing us to God as the supreme object and divorces it from the Word of God as some mystical sort of thing. And we have to remember that we're born of the imperishable seed that, that brings the new life, which is the Word of God. So when we divorce this work of God, this work of the Holy Spirit, from the Word of God, as almost standing in isolation from the Word of God, the, the rise in people trying to prophesy about Trump is going to be the next president or not be the next president and all of that stuff, that's, that's Gnostic mysticism, sadly. Because it can't be pointed to anything specific in the Scripture that we can say, this is where Donald Trump is in the Scripture. Okay? And, and, and what it begins to do is to blur the importance of the Word, fundamental to creation, as being less fundamental to recreation, to restoration, towards salvation. It can create a dualism when we begin to restrict the understanding of Scripture and its application to the whole of reality for the whole of our temporal existence uh, by creating radical disjunctions between the Old and New Testaments, a sort of a dualism between God's work with the Jews and the church that blurs really a fundamental unity of purpose and gradual explication of what Jesus said was the mystery of the kingdom of God. Mark 4.11. There aren't two kingdoms of God. There is the kingdom of God. And when Jesus got ready to leave, we're told in Acts, he spent his time talking to them about the kingdom of God. And who was he talking to? Jews. And we forget that there is a, a progressive revelation, not a disjointed revelation. Because think about what the Apostle Paul writes. He writes about this mystery and the revelation of mysteries that really go back to before creation. Uh, listen to some of the things that he talks about. Uh, the mystery of God's will in Ephesians 1.9. The mystery of Christ, Ephesians 3.4. The mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, Colossians 2.2. The mystery of fellowship, Ephesians 3.9. The mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. The mystery of faith, 1 Timothy 3.9. The mystery of iniquity, 2 Thessalonians 2.7. And finally, the Apostle Paul speaks of the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ as, quote, the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, Romans 16.25. God has been, from the beginning, revealing himself and the mystery of who God is. That's why we're told in Romans chapter 1 that he intended even creation to be a revelation of the mystery of God showing us his eternal might and power and wisdom. Creation, as it says in Psalm 19, is speaking to us and teaching us and there's no place where its sound and its word and its teaching has not gone out. 
we cannot know God apart from revelation. Or let's put it this way. We can't know the true God apart from revelation. And that revelation began in Genesis 1.1. And the salvation that is foretold in Genesis 3.15 that is coming must be in the context of that original first revelation of who God is. And what Paul is saying is that these are mysteries that have been revealed, and then as it says in Hebrews, and now he has finally, and for the last time, with the greatest clarity possible, spoken to us by and through his Son. I want to close there today with this idea of mystery, but I want to close by sharing with you uh, some of the first thoughts from the first page of Herman Bobink's treatise on dogmatics. We seem to shy away from that word today, dogmatics. You may remember Chuck Schumer or somebody saying to Justice Barrett, the dogma sounds loudly in you as if dogma is bad, but it's, it's really talking about what our fundamental beliefs are. And so the very first sentence in Bobick's treatise says, mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. And, and what he's saying here is that our fundamental beliefs, the things that we ground everything on, pertains to mystery. He goes on to say, to be sure, the term mystery in Scripture does not mean an abstract supernatural truth, and it's far removed from the idea that believers can grasp revealed mysteries in a scientific sense. In truth, the knowledge that God has revealed of himself in nature and Scripture far surpasses human imagination and understanding. And in that sense, it is all mystery with which dogmatics is concerned. For it does not deal with finite creatures, but from beginning to end looks past all creatures and focuses on the eternal and infinite one himself. And he says, when, when you begin to think about this, he said, no wonder it's a mystery for how could it not be since we are peering into the infinite and the internal and we are neither one? So he goes on to then say this, and this is what I love, and this is what I hope you will find as you listen to the podcast over the next few weeks because it touches on this point I mentioned earlier about the dualism between heart and head. You see, dogmatics, this concept of theology, of doctrine, can become uh, dry. It can become abstract. It can become meaningless. And I hope over the next few weeks I can bring enough real-life situations, as I've tried to do even some to today, to help you see that these things are vitally important. But I love what he says here, that the more we reflect on God, the knowledge of whom is Christian dogmatics only content, then it will move us, he says, to adoration and to worship. 
Only if one never forgets to think and speak about matters rather than about mere words. Only if it remains a theology of facts and does not degenerate into a theology of rhetoric. Only then is dogmatics and the knowledge of God superlatively fruitful for life. That's why both Augustine and Paul said, the only thing I really want to know is God. That's why God said through the prophets, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in the knowledge of me. It's why the Apostle Paul prays, may you come to a better understanding in the knowledge of God, the mystery of God, the mystery behind creation and the revelation of God. And if we don't let those things become mere abstract thoughts, but we tie them down to the warp and the woof, the facts of life and, and law and government and politics and arts and education and parenting, then we will find ourselves filled with wonder and awe at this God. And if you'll recall, that's exactly what happened as Paul started in on Romans 9 dealing with the Jews and, and how God is working and not forgetting his people, but how he's bringing all things together, as, as he says in Ephesians 1, both in heaven and earth together, he winds up in, in chapter 11 after showing how God is working to bring in the whole household of Israel, the whole household of God. He closes with doxology. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And that's what scripture is trying to tell us. And we want to be looking over the next few weeks at what scripture tells us about God because our foundation must be laid there if we're ever going to build anything that will endure and have lasting value. And I hope you'll join me next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.